Did you guys hear what Brian just whispered? <laughs> I didn't know if your mic was still on or not. Um, oh, don't worry. I'm going to tell you. So, no, it's not. It's just that we, uh, we noticed that um, we were so transfixed by the children's choir, we forgot to take the offering. <laughs> so... Um, so we're going to do that at the end. So the final song, we'll invite the ushers forward to take the offering um, at the end there. Um, but uh, thanks. Uh, shout out to, uh, I think it was Keith that reminded us that that didn't happen. So thanks, Keith. Okay, um, guys, speaking of money matters and offering, I got good news. Um, last week, we did the silent auction over at the potluck. And combined, both the Vesper silent auction and the one we did up at Ridge Paradise the week previous, we raised almost $2,000 for Christmas gifts for our international missionary partners. So it was just enough, like almost precisely enough for us to do what was our goal, and that is to send $250 gift cards to each of our eight missions partners internationally. And so it was really awesome to see it just come together like that. Thank you for your generosity, church. And, and not only that, we sent, uh, we sent the cards that you guys had written. We also had had our kids do cards at the Sunday school that they were able to send to the missionaries. It was really cool. And thanks to Becca Wyan for collating all of that and sending it off to our missionaries. Thanks, Becca. Oh, I messed up. Becca Gillander. <laughs> I, Becca, I'm sorry. We're going to be messing this up for like 20 years, all right? Known you for, as Becca Wyan since the moment I got to church here. And now Becca Galander, Becca Galander. So, sorry, Josh. I, I hope it. Becca and Josh Galander. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, too. It was a bittersweet thing for me with the silent auction. I was so blown away by how much money was raised. Um, and at first, I was very excited by how much money my saxophone solo raised. But then, I got cut down to size. Brian Laws commissioned poetry, raised $225. Stop it, no, no. This is ludicrous, guys. And you're going to say, oh, Josh, it's not a competition. Yes, it was. <laughs> and I failed miserably. Next year, Brian, I'm coming for you next year. <laughs> All right, y'all, enough of me talking. Oh, we got the communion table kind of close. What do you think the odds are that I'm going to bump into this at some point tonight? I hope low. But just so you know, if I get a little animated, just shout out to me to be careful that this is behind me. Um, this evening, we finish up this sermon series we've been doing through the four weeks of Advent. We've been calling it the Anthems of Advent, kind of a throwback from something we did years ago. And the idea is that we've been looking at Christmas carols and portions of Christmas carols, a line, a lyric, a, a phrase and seeing how that leads us back to the rich biblical uh, stories and narratives and text where it comes from. And so we started off with Hark the Herald, Angels Sing, and that took us to the prophet Malachi in Malachi 4.2. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. 
we, uh, the second week, Brian took over. He took us to a little town of Bethlehem and how that phrase, the everlasting light, shows up in the carol. And we talked about the everlasting light as it shows up in Isaiah chapter 60 with this promise of a future where God himself will be the source of light for his people. Last week, Brian also preached. He did, what child is this? And we focused on the king of kings, that the child is the king of kings as we see it in 1 Timothy 6 and in Revelation chapter 20. And now this last installment is going to be God rest you, merry gentlemen, which thank you, Kevin, for doing that. As, it was my request, even if it had to be a cappella, because I wanted to do this song this week. And as you see down here, it's going to take us all the way back to the beginning of the book, Genesis chapter 3. Now, before we read the text, I'm going to give you a little bit of a background to this carol as just kind of a way to introduce it all. I can't tell you who wrote this carol. Actually, nobody can. Partly because it was written a long time ago, most likely in the 1400s, and we're not exactly sure by whom. But what I can tell you, as you see on the slide up here, is kind of the, the spirit that helped make this hymn come to life, make this carol come to life, had to do with the Reformation. And I've got John Wycliffe and Jan Hus up here, some of these guys that sometimes are known as the pre-reformers. The Reformation happens in the early 1500s, but in the century before that, there was stirrings of this Reformation impulse uh, for a lot of different reasons, but here's one of the big ones. People wanted to have the Bible, God's word, in their own language that they could read and understand for themselves. Up to that time, that was not possible. The Bible existed in the original text, that's Greek and Hebrew, but then it also existed in a Latin translation, which in Western Europe was the Bible that was preached, that was spoken about, that was talked about, and of course, not everybody knew Latin. Most people didn't. It was really only the priestly class that was educated in that and could present the scriptures, preach them, and tell people what they meant. Guys like John Wycliffe and Jan Hus, though, weren't satisfied with that. And they devoted their lives to seeing the Bible translated into the language of the people so that they could read it for themselves, that they could hear the gospel, meditate on the gospel, and not have to depend on any other human being to dispense the truth to them. And even though I'm sure all of you guys are like, yeah, that's an awesome work, they were probably celebrated. No, they weren't. It was a scandalous work, and both of these men were martyred for their devotion to that cause. This impulse to see the, the gospel, the scriptures, the story of Jesus in a language that people could understand, it, it didn't just stay in the realm of sacred text. It actually pushed into the realm of music as well. And that's why I'm talking about it right now and today. At the time uh, that we're talking about these 1400s, most church music, not all, but most church music was unaccompanied, that mean unaccompanied, I'm not going to be able to say that, but you know what I mean. Didn't have, you know, guitar behind it, <laughs> piano even. There were chants, most of them Latin, not in the language that people understood. Now, that wasn't all church music, but it was the majority. And for our purposes, we're going to highlight the fact that most Christmas music was like that, songs and 
Latin that nobody of the masses really understood. And so just like there was this impulse to see the scriptures translated into language that the people could speak and understand, there was also this push, this drive to have music, to sing songs and lyrics that were intelligible to to people singing them. And I'll add this too. Most of the church music and the Christmas music of the time, because they were these uh, non-musical Latin chants, they were a little dark, a little dreary, kind of uh, in a minor mode, you could say. And there's a beauty to that, for sure. Some of you music historians will be like, Josh, don't badmouth the Gregorian chant. Okay, I'm not. It's cool in its own way. And yet, you wouldn't naturally say, wow, that is really joy-filled, buoyant, festive music. (laughs) By your laughter, I'm thinking you'd agree with me here. And yet, Christmas and the message of Christmas is joy-filled, buoyant, festive. The people desired to be able to sing songs and have music that was fitting to this Christmas message they were celebrating. And so here, all throughout the English countryside, in the fields, in the town squares, even, yes, in the taverns, little snippets and pieces of music were being put together of popular songs. Maybe a line here, a line there. It could be that God Rest You Merry Gentlemen didn't actually have one author, but rather it was pieced together from people singing all across the countryside And they basically were saying to the church, if you won't give us music that we can understand, if you won't give us music that fits the occasion, we'll do it ourselves. And slowly but surely, people began to sing, God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay, for Jesus Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day. It might not sound to you as the peppiest of songs in 2022, But in the 1400s, compared to what was around it, oh, it was. I've got the uh, the lyrics for us up here. This is just the first line of the song. I just quoted one of them. God rest you, merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day. Now, this is the line we're going to focus on this evening. To save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy. Oh, tidings, you know the end of it. So the line that I told you we're focusing on, to save us all from Satan's power, I picked that one out actually weeks ago when we first started kind of chewing on this idea for the Advent series. And the reason why is I had heard this song and it just struck me that this might be the only Christmas song, at least Christmas carol, that speaks so directly about spiritual warfare and speaks so directly about Satan, the devil. I'm not positive. There are a lot of Christmas carols. There are a lot of Christmas songs. So it could be that I'm overlooking one or that there's an obvious that I just didn't think of. But as I'm going through sort of my mental index of Christmas carols, I can't really recall many other lyrics that talk so directly about the devil. Only God rest ye merry gentlemen. If I'm wrong about that, come up to me afterwards and let me know. I'd like to correct. And, you know, that's the other thing about Christmas carols. They all have, like, 12 verses. Most of us know, like, two verses. And, but, like, if you see the full song, it's like, whoa, that would take, like, 30 minutes to sing through that whole thing. 
So maybe in one of those deep lyrics, there's something there. But from my um, just sort of little bit of research, it seems like this song is the only one that speaks so directly about spiritual warfare. It tells us right out of the gate that when Jesus Christ is born on Christmas Day, he has come into the world for a very definitive purpose, to release us from the power of Satan in our life. To release the devil's snare and bondage on his people so that they're free. Or to put it another way, baby Jesus comes into the world on Christmas and he's looking to pick a fight. A fight he knows he's going to win. I think we're probably ready at this point for reading of the text that we have, Genesis 3. So I'm going to ask if you're able to stand with me for the reading of God's word. We're just going to look at two verses. This is Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15. A little context. This is right after uh, Adam and Eve had disobeyed God. They had eaten fruit from the one tree he told them not to, but they had done it at the suggestion of the serpent, a.k.a. the devil. And so after they, that is Adam and Eve, received curses from God, the fall, the devil, the serpent, also receives this curse from the Lord. We're going to pick up in verse 14. God says this. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. Let's pray. Lord, I ask and pray that the words of my mouth and all the meditations of our heart as we consider this scripture would be pleasing in your sight. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Man, thanks for standing. Go ahead and be seated. <clears throat> so like many things in the Bible, this particular word is, it's layered. It has sort of multiple kind of surface level, deeper, deeper sort of levels of meaning. And so we're going to talk through some of those things as we look at this scripture. At one sort of very simple surface level, this is a curse towards the serpent the snake, the animal that the devil embodied for this temptation, but then also it's directed at him, the devil. So that that first part that we read, you know, cursed are you above all livestock, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat for the rest of your life. That's very familiar. We know how snakes operate. They slither across the ground, and they're awful. I hate snakes. I don't know if that came across there. In fact, I wanted to put a slide up for this, and I found some of various snakes that I could put up, and I was like, no, I ain't doing that. It's gross. (laughs) And if anybody else out there is like me, they might just get up and leave seeing a snake. And and that actually kind of comes to the verse 15. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. That's referencing the fact that humans and snakes generally have not gotten along throughout their history. Snakes bite people. Snakes kill people. And like I just was telling you, snakes gross people out. 
I know there's probably like one or two of you in here that either have a pet snake or had one growing up. I want to say sorry, I don't mean to offend you, but I think I do kind of mean to offend you tonight. (laughs) Sorry. That's weird. There's enmity, and that word enmity, it's just, it's kind of a a fancy way of saying hostility, uh, tension, aggression. But like we said a second ago, it's not just the animal, the snake that is being uh, pointed at here. It's also the devil himself. God is saying to the devil, I'm going to put enmity between you and the children of Adam and Eve, human beings. The devil will seethe with hatred towards humankind. The devil will seek to destroy, to poison, to deceive, to ruin anything that he can get his hands on. And just like a snake putting its venom and and just making things corrupt, So the devil seeks to poison and hurt your relationships, your life, your communion with God. Jesus says it over and over again throughout the Gospel of John. He says, Satan was a murderer from the very beginning. He wants to kill you. And it's traced back all the way to these words of Genesis 3. Now, there's a part that we haven't spoken about yet, and it's the very last little couplet about the bruises. He shall bruise your head, or some of your translations will say, and I think rightly so, he will strike your head or crush your head. He will crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. What's going on there? It's kind of an odd little poetic line. We could say, just to keep it as simple as possible, like, Josh, that's, that's just kind of a, it's the way that the Bible is giving this sort of colorful picture of the enmity between snakes and humans, or the enmity between the devil and humans. Okay, that's true. I mean, snakes do strike at people's heels, and those people stomp on snakes every now and then. But that wouldn't be wrong, but it would be incomplete. There's something deeper going on here in this text. Something that if we look really closely, especially how that line goes from offspring, which we've kind of understood to be plural so far, to start saying, he shall bruise your head. That offspring all of a sudden becomes singular. I think what this is pointing to, and believe me, I'm not alone here. It's pointing to when the devil would marshal all of his hate, all of his power, all of his destruction towards one particular person. And even though that person takes the devil's best shot, they will survive. Well, I made this mistake in paradise earlier. Survive is not the right word. Better is to say they will die, but on the third day they will rise again from the dead. And in their resurrection, they'll show that the snake has no power to kill them. The devil has no power to put them in bondage. But instead, they will be the powerful one, crushing the head of the serpent. Yes, Genesis 3, the very beginning of the Bible, speaks about Jesus. 
speaks about his crucifixion and his resurrection, speaks about his arrival at Christmas. This passage is the first hint, the first whisper, the first foreshadowing that Messiah is on the way. And that even though the devil will come at him with everything he has, even though the devil will hit him with betrayal, with mockery, with torture, with crucifixion and death, that will not be enough to defeat God's son. He will rise again, and he's going to stomp on the head of that snake. Genesis 3 gives us a picture of what Jesus has come to do at Christmas, to save us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray. Now, you might be wondering, well, does that mean the, the devil is, is, is done, is out of the picture altogether? No way. Devil is, uh, he is lashing out furious, furiously, has been ever since Jesus came on the scene, just biting at everything he can, probably because he knows that his days are numbered. And yet... Jesus has crushed his power in, in Jesus' people's lives. So the snake now has a huge dent in his head. His equilibrium is thrown way off. His center of gravity and his balance don't work too well anymore. And what that means is you don't have to be afraid of him in your life. He does not have unilateral power to destroy you to coerce you to do things you don't want to do, to ruin you. No, really the most significant power the devil has is the power he tricks us into giving him. He doesn't have it on his own, though. <laughs> I might be preaching to the choir here. It could be that you guys are like, Josh, we know this. We, we, don't, we don't give the power, or excuse me, give the devil more power than, than is his due, which is great. I mean, it's Presbyterian church. That's kind of our MO. We don't think a lot about spiritual warfare, pay much attention to the devil, which in some ways could be a good thing, but in some ways could be a really bad thing. Because I, I think I've got up here on the screen, I've got um, this line that I wanted you to kind of sort of stay with you today. And that's this idea of we are people who are cautious with confidence. We are called to be cautious when it comes to spiritual warfare and it comes to recognizing and knowing the schemes of the devil. Did you guys know that? You should know that because Pastor Brian preached on it not too long ago. We're going through 1 Peter. And Peter tells us at the end of his letter, he says, Be aware, be sober-minded, for your enemy, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour. Be cautious. And then later, uh, not later in that book, and actually not even later in the New Testament, earlier in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians, this is another passage we've preached on before, where he tells us, be on your guard. Your enemy, the devil, he masquerades as an angel of light looking to deceive you. So, so I throw out those scriptures because I want you to know the Bible 
doesn't mess around when it talks to, to be cautious when it comes to knowing and being aware of the schemes of the devil. And if we aren't cautious, we are being incredibly foolish and dangerous. And yet, that caution, it's not born out of fear. At least it shouldn't be. That caution is not born out of us thinking that the devil has the power to unilaterally ruin our lives. He doesn't. Rather, the caution is born out of, well, the other word up here, confidence. Confidence that your Jesus has crushed the head of the serpent. And that you now abide in Christ, which means you are connected and united to the one that has broken the power of the devil. That bondage in your life is no more. You are free. Like I told you guys a second ago, doesn't mean that the devil isn't lashing out. He knows his days are numbered, so it makes sense that he'd lash out even the more furiously. But you don't have to be afraid of him anymore. And the only power he truly has is the power that sometimes we're tricked into giving him. I told you um, I might be preaching to the choir here. I, I, I know where I wouldn't be preaching to the choir, though, and that would be in the church context that I grew up in when I was a kid. I grew up in Pentecostal churches. I've talked to you guys about that before. And I think some of you guys out there have too. And in some ways, I really, really appreciate kind of the legacy that I got from those churches, especially when it came to spiritual warfare. Because I feel like growing up in that environment, I learned how to pray. I learned how to be on guard and watchful for the schemes of the devil. I learned to have my eyes wide open and not to be oblivious to spiritual warfare that's going on. And I'm so thankful for that. And yet, when I remember back in those environments that I grew up in, I specifically and vividly remember times where we would be praying or talking. And it seemed like older folks in the church, well, they gave the devil credit that he didn't deserve. They gave him power that he didn't actually have. They began to talk as if the devil was omniscient. He knew everything, that he was omnipotent, that he was all-powerful. They began to talk as if the devil could take God's precious plan for your life and ruin it. In the way that God the Father would be sitting in heaven and be like, Oh, I had such great things in store for Noel, but the devil ruined it all. No. Or most sinister of all. Sometimes the thinking would be almost to the point of thinking that the devil could make you sin. He could tempt you in such a, a complete way that you were completely compelled to rebel against God. He can't do that. And what would happen is that caution, which I told you was good, would all of a sudden become caution born out of fear. And caution that was head on a swivel watching because the devil was all-powerful and he was going to get you. For, for people like that, for people in that old church context of mine, I want 
to sing God rest ye merry gentlemen just like on repeat. And not the whole song. I just want to sing that one line. To save us all from Satan's power. To save us all from Satan. Just loop it. Because we need to hear that. And that what we celebrate at Christmas, oh, it's so many good things. We love the lights and the carols and the eggnog and the people we get to celebrate with. And the presents, oh, the presents. But what we're celebrating at Christmas is also that when Jesus came into the world on that cold morning, he was announcing to all, and the devil especially, that Satan's day was over. His rule was done. And his power and the lives of God's people was broken. He can bite heels all he wants. Baby Jesus is going to stomp him out. And if I have any tagline I could leave you with, going into Christmas a week from today, it's that baby Jesus arrives on December 25th, and he comes, like I said before, looking for a fight. Let me pray for us, and then we'll head to the Lord's table here. Lord God, I pray that you would just make our hearts marvel. Earlier tonight in the Advent candle prayer, we prayed that you would allow us to marvel at things that are truly marvelous. This is marvelous. That Jesus comes into the world to break the power of our enemy. This is marvelous, Lord. Let us see it for what it is. And I pray that it would create exactly what we just talked about, caution with confidence. Lord, let us be people that are aware of the devil and his schemes. But let us never fall into the trap of thinking that he still has power over us. That you're still fighting him as if we don't know the outcome of the fight. Lord, you've defeated this serpent. You've stepped on his head pray that we would live in the confidence of that. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Just a moment, I'm going to have our elders that are here tonight.